So we got a lot of political news to talk about this week, obviously, in the aftermath of the midterms. Uh, and so I want to just remind you of what I often say, that if you can't pay attention to politics without getting enraged, you shouldn't pay attention to politics. It's just not worth ruining your life over. And one of the reasons people get enraged uh, is because they let themselves get mentally wrapped up in crazy uh, right-wing conspiracy theories. They say, oh, you know, the left uh, supports abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism uh, because they want to destroy our families and uh, keep us from reproducing so they can replace us with illegal immigrants who don't have our traditions of freedom. And, you know, it's crazy stuff. And I think we should all pause a moment and listen to these words of wisdom uh, from Democrat Senator uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, this cut 12. Now more than ever, we're short of workers. Uh, we have a population that is not reproducing it on its own with the same level that it used to. The only way we're going to have a great future in America is if we welcome and embrace immigrants, the dreamers and all of them, because our ultimate goal is to help the dreamers, but get a path to citizenship for all 11 million or however many undocumented there are here. <laughs> now, I, I know what you're saying. You're saying, that, that's what I was trying to tell you. It's all true. It's all true. It actually turns out to all be true. So many of the things that we are accused of saying on the right that we're called conspiracy theorists uh, turn out to be true once the press can report them without damaging the Democrats' chances of getting elected. So now that the midterms are over and they did you know, well, uh, suddenly our corrupt media is reporting all this stuff that they've been keeping secret that we've been saying was true. So here's the New York Times, a former newspaper. They have not, they now report this right after the election is over. The FBI had as many as eight informants inside the far-right Proud Boys in the months surrounding the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Recent court papers indicate raising questions about how much federal investigators were able to learn from them about the violent mob attack both before and after it took place. The existence of the informants, get this, came to light over the past few days, they don't say how many days because they don't want to point out that they didn't report this before the election, came to light over the past few days uh, in a flurry of veiled court filings by defense lawyers for five members of the Proud Boys who are set to go on trial next month. So the defense says there's exculpatory evidence in these papers that show that there were as many as eight informants. Now, we don't know whether these informants were FBI employees, but we know that they were informing the FBI. And of course, you know, Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, says these guys did not in any way incite the Proud Boys to go into the Capitol. Uh, here's cut five of Wray under questioning. Did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters on January 6th of 2021? Well, Congressman, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have to be very careful about what I can say about when. Even our, now, because that's what you I, told us two years finish? ago. May I finish? Uh, about when we do and do not, and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. Uh, but to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false. Did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters inside the Capitol on January the 6th prior to the doors being opened? Again, I had to be very careful. It should be a no. Can you not tell the American people no? <laughs> hey, if you can't believe Christopher Ray, who can you believe? You know, the thing about this is you got to use your imagination. Let's, you know, it's possible these weren't FBI employees. You know, hello, my fellow uh, Trump supporters. 
But even if they were just informants, you know, these guys are charged with seditious conspiracy. The conspiracy is a plot. In order to plot, you have to discuss things. So of all these people, I don't even know how many Proud Boys there are. Nine? <laughs> Ten? You know, eight of them. Eight of them were FBI informants. So you've got the FBI informants. And if they know that there is a seditious a plot, a conspiracy for sedition, Aren't they calling the FBI and saying that these guys are plotting, they're plotting to charge into the government? And, you know, poor AOC, she's hiding under a desk. She's afraid for her virtue. You know, this is, a, this is a terrible, terrible thing. They don't stop them. They don't stop them. And when they're plotting, do these FBI informants, who, of course, not, don't work for the FBI, of course, did they say, you know, yeah, let's do that? At which case, it's entrapment. The whole thing is baloney. But this only comes out after the midterms. It only comes out. This is true, by the way, in this Oath Keepers trial. Uh, they, they had another guy. They had an informant, uh, a, a, uh, an informant in the Oath Keepers who was not called by the prosecution to bring information. He was called by the defense to bring information. But on the way to the trial, he had a heart attack. The guy was 40. He's 40 years old. But suddenly he had a, a heart attack. Now, many of you know me as the lord of the multiverse, so you would expect uh, me to get a lot more respect than I do. The reason I don't is because I just don't go around bragging about being a lord, but you should. That's what you should do. I should go around, and, and the way you do that is you get go to established titles. Established titles is your opportunity to earn the title of lord or lady and get the respect you deserve. All you need is a one square foot plot of land in Scotland. Established titles is a project based on a historic Scottish custom where landowners are referred to as lairds or lords and ladies in English. In your title pack, you'll be bestowed with at least one square foot of dedicated land on a private estate in Edelston, Scotland, plus an official certificate with a crest. I have one. Uh, your certificate features a unique plot number with which you can see the exact location of your land. Titles, packs from established titles are a fun and unique gift for any occasion, and there are even couple packs that come with adjoining plots of land for the special someone in your life. With your certificate, you could officially add the prefix of lord or lady to your credit cards, plane tickets, and even your dating profiles. And get this, established titles told me that the first 200 people purchasing a title pack using my exclusive link will receive a plot within a few walking minutes of mine. Established titles is actually running a massive sale right now. Plus, if you use the code CLAVEN, you get an additional 10% off. Go to establishedtitles.com slash Clavin to get your gifts now and help support the channel. You can't be Lord of the Multiverse, but you can be Lord of a plot of ground in Scotland if you know how to spell Clavin. And by the way, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. So I just want to point out one thing. All through the Russian collusion uh, hoax, the FBI had a million secret anonymous sources in the FBI. The New York Times had all these sources in the FBI calling them. None of them called with this information before. They couldn't have called their all those sources, those wonderful anonymous sources. Maybe they were anonymous, so the New York Times didn't know how to get in touch with them. I call him, but I don't know his name because he was anonymous. So maybe <laughs> they couldn't find out. But suddenly, after the election, and not only that, here's another one from the Washington Post. Right after the election, the Washington Post reports this. And, and the Washington Post also has a lot of anonymous sources. Maybe it's just a guy named Anonymous who's call, constantly calling these people. Federal agents, this is from the Post, where democracy dies in darkness, if they have anything to say about it. Federal agents and prosecutors have come to believe 
former President Donald Trump's motive for allegedly taking and keeping classified documents was largely his ego and a desire to hold on to the materials as trophies or mementos, according to people familiar with the matter. Now, think back on this. Remember that when they went in and they raided Mar-a-Lago, they said Trump had the nuclear codes. Remember this? They were saying he may have the nuclear codes. He's going to call up with a disguised voice and say, I'm calling in to set off a nuclear war. I mean, remember all this stuff that he had? How can we allow this to happen? He was keeping souvenirs, just like all the other presidents. This was Trump when he announced that he was going to run again, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Here's uh, one of the things he said about that. This is Cut 21. And then they hired somebody, Demchenko, for $200,000 a year to focus on Trump and to get Trump and other things, including the raid of a very beautiful house that sits right here. The raid of Mar-a-Lago, think of it. And I say, why didn't you raid Bush's place? Why didn't you raid Clinton? 32,000 emails. Why didn't you raid Clinton's place? Why didn't you do Obama, who took a lot of things with him? We will dismantle the deep state and restore government by the people. (laughs) That's <laughs> so kind of a good argument if, in fact, he was just keeping souvenirs like all of the presidents. They've all done it. They've all walked off with, you know, classified documents and all this stuff. But with Trump, it was the nuclear codes, except now we find out it was like, you know, whatever. It was nothing. And, of course, this Hunter Biden's laptop. Remember how Twitter knocked the New York Post off Twitter for reporting on that? By the way, if you're following Elon Musk's journey on Twitter, everybody is quitting, like 90% of the staff is quitting because they're so afraid that Elon Musk is going to take away the censorship. There's a report from Jonathan Turley, I believe, that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, her, or Hillary Clinton associates have uh, induced sponsors to threaten to walk out on Twitter if he doesn't continue censoring. This is how, because they're conspiring, they're so afraid of their conspire of their conspiracy conspiracies becoming known that they actually have to threaten Twitter uh, because they do not want this information coming out. That's why they're against free speech, because of this stuff that they're doing. And now we're finding out, I mean, this is kind of interesting. Now that the House has been taken over by a Republican majority, uh, Representative James Comer of the House Oversight Committee says they're going to start looking into that Hunter Biden laptop, which you will remember 50 or 51 Former intelligence officers, very high ranking, some of them leaders of the CIA, said, oh, no, this is Russian, this laptop thing, this is Russian misinformation. Turns out not so much. It was all extremely, completely accurate. Uh, And now James Comer says they are going to start investigating that. It's cut 22. Committee Republicans have identified over 50 countries the Biden family sought businesses in. On the international side of the Biden family business, the deals were often led by Hunter Biden. And that map there behind Clay shows all the countries where the Bidens had a footprint in international business dealings. The investigation reveals a family that engaged with some of America's most powerful adversaries, planning to sell one of the largest sources of cobalt for electric vehicles in the world to the Chinese, for example. The Bidens flourished and became millionaires by simply offering access to the family. Among the dozens of shell companies the Bidens set up, there were millions of dollars of wire transfers flights on Air Force Two to conduct personal business and meetings with heads of state, all while Joe Biden was aware of what was happening. No wonder they got to shut down Twitter if he saw that. What do they have that? They have that uh, part of Twitter, that department in Twitter called something. It has this Orwellian name like trust and safety, which is uh, trust us and we will keep the Democrats safe, I think is what that means. 
It is now so clear that so many of our conspiracy theories turned out to be simply the literal truth that even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is admitting that we get everything right. Here she is saying that right-wingers are just right again and again and again. It's cut three. The same folks who tell, who tell us and told us that COVID, COVID's just a flu, that climate change isn't real, that January 6th was nothing but a tourist visit, are the same, are now trying to tell us that transgender people are not real. So she admits it. We get everything right. We get, we get the whole, all, everything we say turns out to be true. You know, to look on the positive side of this, if, if seeing that there are conspiracy theories that the press refuses to report makes you angry and you're walking around in a rage all the time, and now it turns out that it's all true that, you know, they're pushing homosexuality and transgenderism and, uh, you know, uh, abortion because they don't want us to reproduce so they can replace us with people who do not have our traditions of freedom, right? We can solve both of these problems at, at one time, right? Here's what we do. There's, there's an article by Arthur Brooks today. I can't remember this, where it was. I saw it on RCP. An article by Arthur Brooks. He teaches a happiness class. He used to run AEI, very bright guy. I saw his first speech at AEI. He's a real brilliant guy. He now teaches a class on happiness at Harvard University. And he writes about how happiness has been going down in America at the same time that marriage rates Religion, childbearing, and work have been declining. Those are the things that give life meaning and give uh, you love and give you happiness, and they're all declining with happiness. So here's what you do. Here's how we solve both Chuck Schumer's problem and our problem with anger, right? Find a spouse. Find someone of the opposite sex. Now, that's a little complicated because there's so many sexes. There's lots and lots of centers. There's men, uh, and then there's women. Actually, that's it. So it's not, that's not so complicated. So find someone of the opposite sex. Go to church, right? Solves that problem. You go to church, get married, solves that problem. If you're the girl in this relationship, because there's only two things you can be, if you happen to be the woman, get pregnant. If you're the guy, get a job and support your wife while she takes care of your children. Now we're reproducing and we have all the things. We can send the illegals home and we have all the things that make us happy. Problem solved. Now we can move on and talk about politics. That was unbelievably great, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So like and subscribe and also subscribe to the Andrew Clavin podcast. So on a cultural subject, I had a really interesting experience over the last couple of weeks. Uh, a few years back, it's been years, uh, Shapiro recommended that I see the HBO series Band of Brothers about uh, Easy Company, an American army company that was in D-Day and in the Battle of the Bulge. Very uh, interesting, uh, exciting war story from a book by Stephen Ambrose, an excellent historian. Uh, this was put together by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. And it just took me a long time to get to it. There's so much new content I wanted to look at, and I didn't, I missed it the first time it came out. Uh, I had thought I was in England, but it actually came out in 2001 after I'd come back, but I'd just come back and I just didn't pick it up. And I was watching it, and I, here's the reason it was fascinating to me. One of the reasons my Hollywood career came to an end, maybe the central reason my Hollywood came to an end, was because of my vociferous, loud attack on Hollywood for making anti war movies while our soldiers was in the, were in the field. Didn't bother me that people were anti-war. Didn't bother me that they thought, you know, the Afghanistan war was wrong or the Iraq war was wrong. All of those things are your American right to make those decisions, very important decisions that citizens have to make. But never before, never before had the American movie industry made movies depicting 
uh, our soldiers in a bad way while our soldiers was, were in the field. If you go back and look at all of the movies against Vietnam, they all came out after the war was over. So I, I started to look at this and I started to yell about it. And finally, I wrote a big survey of old Hollywood movies called The Lost Art of War for City Journal. And here is how it began. This was after all these anti-war movies were coming out. I said, Hollywood has gone back to war and this time it's appalling. All autumn long, the film industry released movies about America's battle against global jihad. With one exception, the competent actioner of the kingdom, each of these movies distorted an urgent ongoing historical enterprise through the lens of a filmmaker's unthinking leftism. Redacted rendition in the Valley of Elah and Lions for Lambs characterize our soldiers and government agents as rapists, madmen, murderers, torturers of the innocent, or simply victims caught up in a venal and bloodthirsty American foreign policy. All this at the very moment when our real-life soldiers and agents are risking and sometimes losing their lives fighting the most hateful and cancerous worldview since Nazism, by which I meant radical Islam. Uh, so you wonder why my phone stopped ringing. <laughs> I was selling a lot of scripts. I was making a lot of money. Suddenly my phone stopped ringing. And while I was watching these movies, uh, one of them, I believe it was the movie They Were Expendable, which had John Wayne in it, but it was also directed by John Ford and, and Robert Montgomery was in it. And a lot of the actors in it had been in World War II so that they, in the titles, it would say Robert Montgomery and then whatever his rank was in the Navy. Uh, so they were telling you this is these Hollywood actors had been fighting for America, something that I don't think would happen uh, very much today, right? There's not a lot of them who have been in Afghanistan and in Iraq. This was another thing that was bothering me. Oliver Stone made a lot of movies attacking the Vietnam War. Oliver Stone was a grunt in the Vietnam War, had a right to say anything he wanted to say, where these guys were sitting around in the Cafe Mormont on the Sunset Boulevard and saying, oh, yes, I hate this George W. Bush. He's, a, he's such a rude. You know, I'll, I'll have another cafe latte half cap. So I was watching this, this one about they were expendable when it came to me that if I wanted to write about these things, I basically had to go uh, and have myself embedded with the troops. And I went over for a very brief period of time, was embedded with the troops in Afghanistan uh, at uh, Fort uh, Cal uh, Fob, Calagush, uh, Forward Operating Base Calagush, and uh, which later became a central part of the action, but at the time was not uh, very active, although I just I, I got there a day after they'd been fired upon. Um, and then I wrote an article about that called uh, Five Days at the End of the World, uh, talking about the fact that these movies were hurting our troops. And again and again, um, it was not the, the opinions. It was the fact that the, they were making propaganda for the enemy while our sons essentially were in a harm's way. Now, one of the things that has happened in this period of time since that, all, all that uh, is that my attitude toward war has changed. Uh, I have become more horrified by war. And my point about war was never that it was good. I never would have said that. Uh, it was that people are bad. People are bad and they do bad things and they don't like freedom and they will attack you and they will kill you. And some of them are poor and have nothing. And so they will come after the things that you have. And that the arguments against war don't make any sense. You know, one of the most famous anti-war poems ever written is by Wilfred Owen. It's called Dolce Decorum Est. It was written uh, during World War I. And there were a lot of, for some reason, all, they were almost all gay. There were a lot of gay poets who came out of World War I and were very anti-war. And World War I was one of the most useless and brutal and bloody wars in, in history. Just a, one of the worst mistakes ever made. But Dolce Decorum Est is just a description of a guy dying horribly from poison gas. Uh, and 
And at the end, he says, I wish you could have seen this. He said, if, if you, if in some smothering dream, if you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, which means sweet and fitting is it to die for one's country. And I've always felt that this is a dishonest poem. It's a beautiful poem. It's a well, beautifully written poem. But I felt it was a dishonest poem in the same way I felt about Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July with Tom Cruise, where the guy is ardent to go to war and then gets shot and paralyzed and then becomes an anti-war activist. Essentially, you're saying, oh, I got blown up. I got killed horribly. Uh, and therefore, war is bad. But that's what makes people brave, is that they risk that. That's We understand that. We understand that war is awful, that we should avoid war at all costs, that we should never fight a war that doesn't absolutely have to be uh, fought. But the courage is what you're facing. And now it is as old. That's not just mechanized war, which is particularly bad, but that's as old as Homer's Iliad. Read Homer's Iliad and you will see the description of people being butchered uh, is just awful. Now, many of you know me as the lord of the multiverse, so you would expect uh, me to get a lot more respect than I do. The reason I don't is because I just don't go around bragging about being a lord, but you should. That's what you should do. I should go around, and, and the way you do that is you get go to established titles. Established titles is your opportunity to earn the title of lord or lady and get the respect you deserve. All you need is a one square foot plot of land in Scotland. Established titles is a project based on a historic Scottish custom where landowners are referred to as lairds or lords and ladies in English. In your title pack, you'll be bestowed with at least one square foot of dedicated land on a private estate in Edelston, Scotland, plus an official certificate with a crest. I have one. Uh, your certificate features a unique plot number with which you can see the exact location of your land. Titles packs from established titles are a fun and unique gift for any occasion, and there are even couple packs that come with adjoining plots of land for the special someone in your life. With your certificate, you could officially add the prefix of lord or lady to your credit cards, plane tickets, and even your dating profiles. And get this, established titles told me that the first 200 people purchasing a title pack using my exclusive link will receive a plot within a few walking minutes of mine. Established titles is actually running a massive sale right now. Plus, if you use the code CLAVEN, you get an additional 10% off. Go to EstablishedTitles.com slash Clavin to get your gifts now and help support the channel. You can't be Lord of the Multiverse, but you can be Lord of a plot of ground in Scotland if you know how to spell Clavin. And by the way, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. So I watched this uh, Band of Brothers, which is it's, it's terrific. I mean, it's the acting and the direction and the uh, the techniques for de depicting battle, which Spielberg, uh, who was once called the best second unit director who ever lived, uh, which means that he was he's great and a great action director. The second unit guy is the guy who does goes off and does the action scene while the real directors uh, directing the actors and doing the drama and all that. And uh, Spielberg is, has been called. Uh, the best second unit director ever because his action sequences are so great. It's kind of a it's kind of a bitchy thing to say about him because it means that his other his ideas aren't that great. And I agree with that. I don't think his ideas are good at all. Uh, but anyway, it's got this wonderful cast of young guys: Damian Lewis, uh, Donnie Wahlberg, uh, Michael Fassbender, and they're just terrific. And it's the true story of these guys who parachute into Normandy 
fought uh, on D-Day, and then were in the famous Battle of the Bulge at Bastogne. They were, they were called the, bat, the Battered Bastards of Bastogne. And what, one of the things that struck me about this movie was that aside from the fact that the technology was so great that it really looked real, you could see what it was like uh, to be in the battle. It was terrifying. It was very much like old war movies that I grew up watching. You know, I grew up watching them on TV. They were older than me. I, they were before my I was born. They were made before I was born. But I grew up watching them on TV, and they make fun of them now for being patriotic and for being kind of gung-ho. The most famous of them is called The Sands of Iwo Jima with John Wayne. It's one of John Wayne's most famous, probably his most famous uh, picture uh, that he made that where he wasn't a cowboy and he plays Sergeant Stryker, who's the tough sergeant who's just everybody hates. All the soldiers hate him, but they don't realize that his toughness, his cruelty, his brutality in training them is getting them ready for an absolutely inhuman situation, which is the battle of uh, battle on Iwo Jima, where they finally raised the flag. And it was just a brutal, brutal battle. I these island to island fights and the scenes in uh um, in Band of Brothers, which are real scenes, there is a true story, are almost exactly, they mirror the scenes that are in Sands of Iwo Jima, the tough training that turns out to be worthwhile, uh, the tough uh, the tough leaders who don't let you do things, the fact that you have to do things that are inhuman in uh, Sands of Iwo Jima, one of the most difficult scenes to watch is a scene where one of the company gets shot and is dying and is calling for help. And John Wayne will not let his soldiers, uh, he's a, I think he's a top sergeant and he won't let his soldiers go out and rescue the man because if he does, they'll all be killed. Here's that, a cut of that scene. Strike him. Get down and stay down. You've had your orders. Don't move. There's somebody wounded out there. Quiet. Let's go over and get him. Stay down. Maybe an old Jap trick. They pulled it plenty on a canal. Doesn't sound like a Jap to me. I don't care what it sounds like to you. You stick your head up and you'll tip our position. Stryker! It's Bass. How many Japs know your name, Stryker? It's Bass. You know his voice. Shut up. Aren't you human at all? Don't you realize a friend of yours may be dying? Knock it off. This is what my father taught you. Be a great Marine. Be tough. Well, you can sit here and be tough if you want to. But I'm going out there and get that guy. And the only way you can stop me is to kill me. That's just what I'll do. So you think, well, John Wayne is inhuman, but of course he's saving the life of his entire company by not letting this clown, this sensitive, nice, poetical clown, go save this guy and thereby expose their position and get them all killed. The exact same scene is in Band of Brothers when one of the guys gets wounded and they're trying to reach him and they're just pinned down and they have to retreat and it's heartbreaking. This is cut uh, 15.
they leave him there and he dies. And one of the things, I mean, that, that got me about this, got me about Saving Private Ryan, too. I didn't like Saving Private Ryan. The first half hour of Saving Private Ryan is epoch-making. Uh, Spielberg, with his genius for filming action, changed the way that war scenes are filmed forever. The, every war scene that comes before Saving Private Ryan uh, looks dated because of Private Ryan. Every scene that comes after it copies Private Ryan because it was just so brilliant. The rest of the movie is sentimental, and it's as if this little wimpy guy suddenly realized, oh, sometimes you have to fight a war, you know? Sometimes you have to do this. Like, he suddenly discovered it. And that also plays into Band of Brothers to a little degree. In a way, it's more sentimental than a John Wayne movie. There's one episode toward the end called Why We Fight, in which the the soldiers stumble upon a, um, a prison camp, a, a, a Jewish concentration camp. Uh, and that's, the episode is called Why We Fight, but that's not why we fought. We didn't fight to save the Jews. We didn't fight because the Nazis were gassing uh, people, innocent people. We, that's not why we fought. We fought because of the geopolitical situation. It was the wisest thing to do. Uh, we stayed out of it as long as we could because people didn't want to go to war. They'd seen World War I and how useless that was. They didn't want to go back and fight for Europe. Europe was none of our business. Uh, same, A lot of the same feeling that a lot of people have about Ukraine. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying in World War II, they were wrong, it turned out, because Hitler could not be stopped and he had to be, uh, he had to be stopped. And, and so th that's not why we fought. And the idea that it is why um, is just sentimental. But there's a part at the very end of that episode that really struck me. And this is the scene that really got me at the end of why we fight. Hitler's dead. Holy shit. Shot himself in Berlin. Is the war over, sir? No. We have orders to back this guy, and we're going to move out one hour. Why? The man's not home. Should have killed himself three years ago. Saved us a lot of trouble. Yeah, he should have. But he didn't. And that's what struck me. That's why we fight. We fight because leaders do terrible, terrible things, and people elect leaders who do terrible, terrible things. And, you know, there's a famous story about Napoleon and Wellington at Waterloo when a sniper had Napoleon in his sights, and Wellington came up to him and says, you can't do that. That's dishonorable to, to kill Napoleon. And I kind of thought, like, oh, go ahead. Kill Napoleon. Put this to an end. You know, I, I really have come to the conclusion that before we send anybody, any soldier, to war, we ought to be under threat. We should be under threat and not under threat if this happens and then that happens and then this happens because we don't know the future. But we should be under threat. These soldiers are so brave. The people who go into these places are so brave and the injuries they can suffer are so horrific and they're so young and the amount of life lost is so terrible that all I can think at this point is that we should look at our leaders really, really carefully, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And before we put Ukrainian flags on our houses, before we get to start to march in line and pound our fists and say, you know, and wave our flags, we should really, really question whether the United States of America has a dog in this fight because war is genuinely hell. The old expression, war is hell, but men are brave, is correct. But before we save brave men to die in war, we should really make sure these leaders know what they're doing. I have to say, as I've gotten older, uh, I have just begun to see how horrible it is. And I just think the that that 
testosterone burst that men have that makes them want to go and want to be in the fight and want to be heroic. Uh, this has got to be countered by older heads who don't believe in glory, uh, who just believe that war must be fought when it must. We saw, we saw the horrible, horrible way the Biden administration pulled out of Afghanistan. Disgusting, uh, absolutely disrespectful of all those lives that were lost. Before we let that happen again, we ought to be very, very, very careful before we get our dander up and before we send men to war. President and venal houseplant Joe Biden met with make-believe president, but really murderous dictator Xi Jinping this week in an effort to improve relations between China and the part of China that used to be the United States. Before the meeting, houseplant Biden told reporters he planned to ask dictator Xi some hard questions like, what is the capital of Indonesia? And how do you get the fortune inside the cookie without breaking the cookie? Or do you roll the fortune into the raw dough? But then why doesn't the fortune catch fire when you cook the dough? And is it really a fortune if it doesn't tell the future? And if it does tell the future, how do Chinese people know what the future is? Also, what does Mugu Gai Pan mean? Biden said if Xi could answer any four of these questions correctly, he would win the risk home game so he could play at taking over the world as a relaxing break from taking over the world. President Xi said he would be asking tough questions of President Biden as well, like, What's that behind you? Then when Biden turned around to look, he would steal his watch. The meeting between Xi and Biden lasted three hours, although that included Biden's two-hour nap, during which Xi had a listening device surgically implanted in one of the president's liver spots so he could record Biden's conversations in the Oval Office and play the results on Chinese TV as a hilarious situation comedy entitled Si Tai Pao, which roughly translates as silly old man says meaningless things to administration underlings who nod with serious looks on their faces and then run the country however they want, while media lickspittles pretend everything's fine, after which the price of gas goes up another dollar. The show will be aired Tuesdays at 8 p.m., followed by old reruns of Three's Company, or as it's called in Chinese, Si Tai Pao. After the meeting, President Biden strode confidently from the conference room into a broom closet where he addressed a collection of mops he mistook for American journalists until they reported the story accurately, whereupon he realized they must have been somebody else. Biden said, quote, you know, it's only when you look in a man's eyes and speak to him directly that you can start to understand his point of view. For instance, I always thought torturing Uyghurs was a bad thing. But now that I've had a chance to discuss it with President Xi, the next time I meet a Uyghur, well, watch out. I also had a chance to ask the president for assurances that he would not invade Taiwan. And he guaranteed me he would no more invade Taiwan than he would implant a listening device in one of my liver spots. Plus, he says he'll continue to send TikTok to America to convince gullible young girls to cut off their breasts and confuse boys to have themselves castrated. So we're both on the same page there. All in all, I was glad to extend the hand of friendship to President Xi, though I do wonder what the hell happened to my watch, unquote. Meanwhile, as the Secret Service debated whether to get President Biden out of the broom closet or just leave him there where he'd be safe, President, not to mention murderous dictator for life Xi, addressed a group of American journalists whom he mistook for mops until they swabbed the floor with soapy water and then squeezed the dirt out into a bucket, whereupon he realized they were actually American journalists. Xi said, quote, It was a great honor to sit down for a talk with your blithering idiot. 
Future vassal Biden had many things to say, and I look forward to having them translated into English so I can understand them. Clearly, you have wisely elected a man we Chinese can work with, given that our work is to destroy your economy, enslave your people, and invade your Chinese restaurants so we can find out what the hell Mugu Gai Pan is. I was also pleased to be able to present the president with the most sacred symbol of Chinese friendship, <laughs> a highly communicable respiratory infection. We all very much look forward to hearing more from President Biden Tuesdays at 8 p.m., followed by reruns of Three's Company. <laughs> Unquote. <laughs> she said he hoped the leaders would build on the progress of this first meeting and then meet next time on Chinese soil, assuming Biden can find his way to Taiwan. <laughs> For more fantabuliferous content, to like and subscribe, and don't forget to subscribe to the Andrew Clavin Podcast. Mm-hmm.